United Lutheran Seminary presents the Seminary Explores podcast, conversations on faith, art, people, politics, theology, life, and more, with voices from around the corner and around the globe. Welcome to the Seminary Explores. I'm Katie Giebenhain. My guest is Dr. Tamina Ali, a longitudinal family physician in British Columbia, Canada. Dr. Ali has always enjoyed writing, and in 2013, obtained a creative writing certificate from Simon Fraser University's writing studio. Writing and medicine merged for her when she discovered Rita Charon's work in narrative medicine, and attended a narrative medicine workshop at Columbia University in 2017. She is the new president-elect of BC Family Doctors. She writes and presents on various topics, including trauma-informed practice. She was awarded the Family Physician of the Year by the College of Family Physicians of British Columbia in 2020 for her dedication to her community and her profession. Her most rewarding and challenging work is raising three teenagers alongside her husband of 26 years. Tamina, welcome to the Seminary Explorers. Thank you, Katie. Thank you so much for having me. You've said that you want to turn family medicine into a team sport, even though it is often practiced more like a solo one now. Could you say something about how important this is and how it connects with longitudinal medicine, especially because of the really wild variety of uh, practice that you encounter in family medicine? Well, the thing that pops into my head is that old African adage of it takes a village to raise a child. Mm. And I think similarly to provide really great comprehensive wraparound care around a patient, you really need a team. No single team member, including myself as a family physician, can really do it all and do it all really well. And so when you have that team who brings different skill sets as well as fresh eyes to a situation, it allows that patient to get the best of everyone. And ultimately, that hopefully brings them health and healing and wellness. Hmm. Yeah, very well put. (laughs) Very well put. Um, Rita Charon, for those who are not familiar with her, established the discipline of narrative medicine, which strives to improve patient care through storytelling and story listening and deep attention. When invited to give the Jefferson Lecture for the National Endowment for the Humanities in the U.S., Charon emphasized that Quote, it helps healthcare professionals develop a tolerance of uncertainty, improves the functioning of healthcare teams, and decreases professional burnout. Um, you were just talking about the, the teams and how important that is. I'm wondering now, uncertainty is also something that's very uh, tricky to deal with. And do you have any um, any sense of how the writing and the teamwork helps colleagues to deal with uh, uncertainty and patience for that matter. Yeah. Well, when I think about what appealed to me when I got into English, so when I did my undergrad degree, I did a minor in English 
uh, mostly because I was a reader. I didn't ever think I was a writer until much later on. And what I loved about reading was immersing myself in a totally different world and getting a sense of that place, even though I never lived there, never visited it. And I think what I love about being a family physician is that learning and hearing my patient stories is like getting into a good book. It gives me a chance to glimpse into someone else's world and get a sense of what it's like for them and hopefully by being alongside them, help them. And then I think with teams, I think that same aspect of group reading, like remembering what it was like to be in English class and go through a novel and you had your own perspectives of it and then you heard the professor's perspective and then you heard your classmates' perspectives and you're like, wow, we all read the same book, we read the same words and yet we brought our own experiences and looked at it differently. And I think it's the same when we have patients. When I worked on a brain injury unit, I had the amazing opportunity to work in a team-based environment where I had a pharmacist and a physiotherapist, an occupational therapist, a social worker, and they were a dream team because Mm. they were able to bring these different aspects to life, um, look at things in a different way, dig into things in a deeper uh, sense than I ever could. And I loved being uh, the maestro the maestra, um, looking over things above and digging in when I needed to and um, recognizing those different environments and perspectives and then being able to communicate it and relay it to families during family meetings, which is similarly when you're writing an essay or interpreting something, you have to kind of explain it to someone um, at a different level. So I think all those reading literature skills totally are applicable to medicine. And when you take that into a narrative medicine group, uh, last time I did it a few months ago, we did one over Zoom and we had some physicians who are trained abroad and they brought this totally different sort of experience and reading to the chosen piece. So again, and it just made people feel connected, even though we were all strangers, we had this commonality in being healthcare workers and allow us to connect in a, a different way. Uh, the, the sense of a patient being like a book is lovely, and that makes so much sense, um, because we all sort of have our own, we exist in our own worlds. I mean, we exist together, but our lives are really also these interconnected yet separate lives. Um, I'm also thinking about empathy and the importance of um, of empathy in medicine and writing and reading because unless you unless you never try to put yourself in someone else's um, shoes, you're only thinking about your feelings and the way you see things. So that makes that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, exactly. And I think the other thing about, I think what we were working on a public campaign possibly um, for family medicine and we had to come up with a snippety sort of one liner of why we chose to be a family physician. And the, the ending that I came up with is because I want to know how the story ends. For me, when I get to know a patient, part of my job when I first meet them um, is knowing their backstory 
And even the newborns who join my practice from the moment that they're literally born, the backstory for them is knowing their mom and how was that pregnancy for them. And then getting to know them in that moment of time, keeping in mind how that backstory might be playing into things, and then hopefully following them for years or decades to come and seeing how that story ends. Um, for me, that's what hooked me into family medicine. I, I hated my rotations like emergency medicine where you met them and you chatted with them and you tried to fix the problem and then out they went and you never knew how it ended. Like, mm. does that cream help? Did they get better? Did they die? What happened? Um, and so for me, that's what I love about my practice is that I get to be an observer in that story ongoing. Wow. And would you mind defining longitudinal um, medicine for people who are not familiar with the term and how that fits into what you're talking about, this, this arc of a patient's life and the longer, um, you know, the longer term relationship? Yeah, I think, you know, back in the day, I think of, you know, Little House on the Prairie and their doctor who did house calls and took care of the entire family over an entire um, length of time as, you know, that longitudinal family doctor, that person who pretty much could do it all, you know, birthed the babies, sat alongside the family member when they passed away. And now as medicine has changed and become more complex, there's a big chunk where it's episodic care. So it's Mm. a physician who provides care more in a walk-in clinic setting or now with virtual care in a kind of dial-a-doctor virtual care setting. Um, So those are the doctors that are kind of one-offs. And also doctors... I don't know about in the United States, but here in Canada, definitely a lot of primary care physicians have gone into focus family practices where they have a focus area of interest, such as palliative care or maternity medicine. So they're going to take care of you in that section of your life. Mm. And then that's it. They didn't know you before. They're not going to know you after, but they take care of you during that predetermined um, length of time versus a longitudinal family medicine physician is in it for the long run. They're, they're there over the years. They take care of a wide variety of issues and you get to know them over time. Uh, both patient gets to know you and you get to know them. Hmm. Yeah, I'm thinking about the contrast to what you just described and to the way things are often fragmented now um, mm-hmm. into, uh, and specialized uh, in in a lot of ways that we live, not just in medicine, but of course our health is tied to the way we live and the way that we move through the world and our families. So it's it is hard to talk about it separately. Yeah, exactly. I think um, that's where I feel most stuck. I think these days when I have a patient who doesn't have a job and has a fungal infection that can't get better because he can't afford the fungal cream that will fix it. Mm. And if I had a social worker at my disposal, he or she could help navigate the system for him and get the resources. And so it feels very stifling to know where the solution is, where the what prescription could help him, and yet not be able to have the means to provide those psychosocial determinants of health that will help him um, 
fix a rash. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's not enough to know. Or there's also a, a good quote from um, Healthcare for All in Maryland from Vincent DeMarco, who says, um, medicines don't work if people can't afford them. So, you know, if you, if you know what's... <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's just very... It just puts it to the point. It's like, well, if it exists and if you don't... If you can't afford it or you don't have access to it, then it may as well not exist. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And then you're basically then working like a third world country um, with where for them, the biggest lack often is the medicine. And in recent years, it's become very odd where because of manufacturing or what, even normal um, bread and butter medications like penicillin, is shorted, um, hmm. and it and so now you don't even necessarily you can have all the money in the world, and yet in a developed country like Canada, because of manufacturing shortages or the manufacturers are choosing to make more expensive medicine. I have no idea what is the background to it, but there simply isn't the the simple penicillin, and so they end up uh, using a more broad spectrum antibiotic that's not the best for the patient hmm. because that's simply all that's available. Hmm. Oh, wow. Frustrating. Yeah. I was wondering if you had another example of something from narrative medicine, either one of the presentations or workshops that you have done or collaborated with, or one that you have um, seen someone else do that really um, made an impact on you. Um, with writing or with visual art as the example, if there's just something that comes to mind as another way to describe this practice and then how it ends up having a having a, a, a useful impact on the way that you're practicing medicine. Well, I think one area I think narrative medicine has really helped me, I think, heal as well as move forward is in connecting with Indigenous culture. Mm. Um, Here in Canada, I think in the last few years, we've really come to a, trying to reconcile a very destructive past with how society has treated our Indigenous patients and um, peoples. And one uh, author who I think writes so eloquently about it is uh, Katerina Vermette, who's a Métis author from Winnipeg, Manitoba. Mm-hmm. And she had this first beautiful novel, The Break. And she writes these very challenging scenes of the character healing from major trauma. And for me, reading that book really took me back to my medical school training because I was Hmm. trained in Winnipeg Mm -hmm. and I could envision myself in that hospital room with, you know, multiple Indigenous family members, you know, first cousins and second aunts and all these people and being in this crowded room and wondering, why are all these people here? And, you know, this seems like a lot and feeling quite judgmental about it and the inherent racism that... I experienced and witnessed um, towards Indigenous patients during my training Um, and then hearing it from the other side through this novel, I guess, helped me 
recognize that I did the best I could in the situation, uh, even though I feel uh, a great deal of guilt and an element of shame of my part in it um, and how I think I treated my Indigenous patients at the beginning of my career. But it also served as a beautiful starting point and has been a, a great text to use in narrative medicine of using those types of scenes of, okay, well, can we imagine what it would be like for all the people in that room, the patient, the extended family member, the physician walking into that room? So I think for me, the word is still my favorite place to go. Mm. Um, I also think of some amazing Indigenous artists whose work um, is always high... Uh, invigorating and makes you think but I think the words and the stories are what capture for me the the essence of another person's world and looking at it in a different way and I think again like I said kind of create some healing um, because I think without recognizing your own trauma and your own guilt it can be easier to just try to ignore it versus recognizing that maybe you're not changing things because then that's admitting that the way you did things differently wasn't ideal and was perhaps even wrong, um, which is a hard thing to admit. Hmm. Absolutely. That's so true. Um, and that's, such, that's one of the values of narrative medicine too, is the things that you recognize about yourself, you know, as a practitioner and as a person and what, what things Without paying attention, what things do you miss that could be getting in the way of just how you understand things or how you're, you know, what you're saying, how you're reacting, what your own assumptions are, what the patient's assumptions are? Uh, that's really interesting. Exactly. It kind of provides a mirror for yourself in a more indirect way that might create those aha moments where you're like, oh, yes, I do that too, um, which you might not have otherwise realized. Mm. Oh, absolutely. What are some other things about like previous um, job settings or places that you have worked that have helped um, with this sort of openness for what other patients' experiences might be or also what other colleagues' experiences might be? Because you've, you've practiced in some different geographical areas, haven't you? have. Yeah, I guess um, thinking about yeah, practicing in rural areas, rural small, small towns, isolated towns as well as suburban areas. Well, I think the simple act of being a reader, I think, has often broke the ice with patients. I think paying attention to those other things. I, I, I kind of like when you're a writer, they, one of the tenets is always to show the reader versus tell the reader. And mm -hmm. when you're reading a book, similarly, that you're kind of looking for the clues. And I think for me, that approach with patience is similar of looking and seeing if they're reading a book when I enter the room, asking them about the book, or if they're wearing a certain uh, clothing item or, or something, again, using that kind of reader's mind to 
look into things. And I think curiosity, I think for me, I've always been a plot driven person. I love <laughs> a good plot. That's the big thing that hooks me in a novel. Uh-huh. Um, and I think what I love about the different areas I've practiced in is it's given me like it drives my, it feeds my curiosity because it gives me a chance to ask very personal questions of people under uh, totally appropriate uh, circumstances. I'm allowed to ask people, you know, uh, you know, what do you do for a living and what brings you here um, under the guise of being the family physician versus uh, a, probably wouldn't be appropriate to ask those delving questions in the supermarket line. Um, And so one of the places that I've really utilized that skill and that special insight is I do locums on Cortez Island, which is this remote northern Gulf Island off the the coast of Vancouver Island. You have to take three ferries to get there. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah, so it's super remote. And it's absolutely beautiful. The the scenery is just breathtaking. And when I work there, especially in the summer, the population just explodes and you get people from all over the world who come there and mm. Americans. And I remember there was this one patient I saw who was all the way from Westchester County, New York, and they owned a cabin on Cortez Island. And so, of course, I had to ask her, like, how in the heck <laughs> did you end up getting an island out here on the west coast of Canada? Um, but again, it just offered a sense of a connection and I think, um, humanizes both of us. I think humanizes me as a physician, especially on the days where I'm, you know, maybe a bit more harried and rushed and, um, can hopefully help me kind of calm and settle down to and remember why I'm doing the job in the first place. Hmm. Hmm. Very true. And also when you mentioned, uh, the show, showing instead of telling as a reader and as a writer and in a patient encounter, if if the patient feels um, that information is being given in a, in a show, if you're showing them something or just having a conversation instead of telling, that can, you're going to be more likely to listen, right? And to, and to take it seriously and not feel like you're being sort of talked down to or or told um so i think that's important too you're giving off a different signal simply you know for the way that you're that you're having that conversation yeah i think that's a good point i never thought of it that way it's um instead of kind of lecturing and kind of this almost hierarchical power differential of you know physician to patient then hopefully it equalizes things um between patient and physician and um, I love Brené Brown of, you know, really mm. thinking about going alongside a patient. And can you be alongside the patient like a reader and a writer are alongside each other, um, getting to know each other? Yeah, I like that approach. And also, I think curiosity, if, you, if you're speaking with someone, you can tell if they're genuinely curious or not. And that also just gives a really different signal for the encounter, if someone is interested and curious and um, just ready to hear what you have to say. That is such a difference, you know? (laughs) Exactly. I think that can hopefully take away some of the judgments because I think that's where a lot of us have gone wrong in earlier times, as well as with uh, disenfranchised or marginalized patients 
for them, a huge part of it has been judgment, um, fear of judgment, being judged in the past. And if you can put the judgment aside and come from a place of curiosity, then uh, the door is just open. And as healers, I think we, it took me a long time to realize this, that nothing's going to happen unless you can bridge that gap and create that alliance. Otherwise, you could you know, talk till the cows come home and give tons of prescriptions and do tons of referrals and nothing's going to change unless you can create that connection. It's really like, you know, the, again, going back to the book metaphor, if you can't hook that reader from that first few pages in that chapter, they're not going to read the rest of the book. And they <laughs> might, as a patient physician, carry the book around, but they won't have delved into it. And then I wouldn't have really done my job as a physician. Um, and so I think that's one of the, and that's one of the beauties of being a long tunnel physician that I think it gives me so much wiggle room is that I can make mistakes and then I have a chance to, to repair the next time. Kind of like being a parent is that, you know, there's this back and forth and hopefully deposits and withdrawals on the account versus I think for an episodic care provider, there's so much pressure to get it right, right mm. from the start. Mm. And that's where when it's some of the challenges on this healthcare system are is that, you know, patients will see an episodic care provider, they might not get it right. And so right from the get go, the patient doesn't trust anything they say. And then they end up making an appointment with you for the same reason, because they trust what you're going to do. And we have a connection versus that person. So it puts that extra pressure, which is again, why I much prefer my gig versus the episodic care provider, because that background gives me so much more wiggle room and um, ability to at least be further in the chapter book, hopefully. <laughs> yes, lovely. <laughs> so my last question for you, it's going to sound quite broad, um, and it might be broad, but it might also be very specific. And that is, um, what is something that you wish for right now that would improve healthcare, whether it has a connection to narrative medicine or not. What's something that you just really wish for? I wish we valued stories more hmm. and recognized the power of them and also the cost. Hmm. So I think for a patient, especially if well, I guess even if it's a straightforward story or a painful story, the cost of relaying it and telling another person about it is a chance to connect, but it also often has an emotional cost. And I think the thing that I've heard from colleagues lately is right now in BC, we're in a major primary care crisis and what causes a lot of um, provider distress is when they see someone who's had a significant uh, trauma and sees this person and has to tell them and that provider knowing that they're not going to see that person again and the next time they're going to see someone else and they're going to have to tell their story over and over again. Uh. I think the way the system is so fragmented, it forces people to say their story over and over and over again. And it comes at a high price for patients. And I think sometimes it means that they'll stop telling the story or they'll give an abbreviated one. 
or perhaps it will lead to more shame because they'll have seen the responses from sim care providers when they've shared the story. And I think if we can somehow protect the essence of someone's story and also create a system where we create space for it. Um, For a lot of uh, physicians, we work in a system that was set up years ago that was very transactional. It's a fee-for-service system. You see me, I do something, I get paid for it. But we now work in a system where I need time to think and um, ponder and research what I've seen or what I'm about to see in a patient encounter. And I also need to have time and space to let the patient breathe and tell their story in a way that's going to feel right for them. Um, I always laugh with first year medical students because, you know, they're taught how to take a history. And so there's this very, there's these big subcategories that we have to hit, you know, the chief complaint, the history presenting illness, past medical history, family history, social (laughs) history, review of systems, all these, all these areas. And so as I even tell them to you, that's kind of the order that we're going to write them down in our written report. And so when they start out with patients, their goal is to hit those all in a chronological order. But what I always encourage them to try to do is to let the patient start their story. And as they're doing their story, recognize that they might start talking about something that's going to be under family history, and you can collect that information then. And then they might shift to something that's social history and collect that information Mm, then. mm -hmm. And that might take us back to history presenting illness that. Um, to be really patient-centered, the way they're going to tell us their history is going to be a much more more circuitous path, that there's going to be lots of twists and turns to it. It's not going to be this straight path. And usually we find is that when you give them breathing space to do that, you can probably gain all that information in a, a shorter amount of time and or probably equal amount of time, and the patient will have felt much more heard versus if we go in there, which we so often do, and interrupt within seconds because they've started with X and we're already thinking about Y. (laughs) So I think that would be my biggest dream is can we somehow create space for stories but also recognize the sacredness of them and try to minimize our patients having to repeat them over and over and over again. Mm, absolutely. And the other, the irony there is that that cir- circuitous path ends up actually being more accurate, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Even that, though it does, you <laughs> tend to find more, you find more Easter eggs that way. And so <laughs> you'll find out more information about bits of pieces of stuff that you that you probably would not have because often patients, they don't recognize that we're looking for X, Y, Z. They're thinking of ABC, but often there's an overlap. And if you let them talk about ABC, we'll probably get to X, Y, Z. Very good. Oh, thank you. (laughs) You've been listening to The Seminary Explores. I'm Katie Giebenhain. My guest has been Dr. Tamina Ali, family physician and writer in British Columbia, Canada. Tamina, thank you so much for your time, and I wish you all the best with your practice. Oh, thank you so much, Katie. It's been a pleasure talking to you and thinking about these ideas. 
You have been listening to The Seminary Explorers, a production of United Lutheran Seminary with campuses in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania and Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We invite you to visit our website at unitedlutheranseminary.edu. All opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of United Lutheran Seminary or the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America.